This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 54 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, an expert insight and some good news as South Africa hits number five among the new daily infections table. A global South African tech guru breaks new ground on the coronavirus with an agent-based artificial intelligence model. There's bad news for restaurant owners worldwide as at least 25% are expected to never reopen. And we have another brilliant investigation by our partners at the Wall Street Journal, this time into why infections in the hard-hit United States of America have risen back to new record levels and what other countries like South Africa can learn from it. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headlines, with new infections having established a daily base of over 6,000, South Africa is now entrenched in the global top five on new coronavirus infections. Although down from Saturday's peak of over 7,000, Monday's 6,130 new cases took the country's total to more than 144,000. A further 73 deaths pushed mortalities here to more than 2,500. Context later in this episode from Discovery's Dr. Ron Whelan. Globally, total infections are now 10.5 million, with deaths at 510,000. A second wave in the United States has taken new infections there to a fresh peak of 47,000 last Friday. Monday's 44,700 new infections were the second highest of any one day. Total cases in America are now over 2.7 million and mortalities at 130,000. Some good news from a Johannesburg company as a homegrown COVID-19 testing kit promises to step into one of South Africa's biggest gaps in the national fight against the virus. Here's Okwi Oko of Reuters. It's the African country hit hardest by COVID-19 and a shortfall in testing capacity has further undermined South Africa's response to the pandemic. But in a laboratory in Johannesburg, scientists are packing up test kits in a bid to plug the gap. Cape Biotechnologies, led by Chief Executive Daniel Indema, says it plans to roll out up to 5,000 test kits per day from the end of July. We knew that uh, South Africa and the entire continent basically relies heavily on imports. And we knew that uh, because of the pandemic, uh, our country will struggle to get the test kits. So we said to ourselves that we need to stop doing what we were doing and just work on COVID-19. The WHO has warned that a shortage of test kits is a challenge for the continent. And in South Africa, the situation is exacerbated by a weak rand. That's meant spending more on imports, further straining an already stretched budget. With 100,000 confirmed cases already, the government is expecting an escalation ahead of an anticipated peak towards the end of the summer especially in crowded townships. 
As of the end of May, there was a backlog of over 96,000 unprocessed specimens awaiting testing, according to the health ministry. But at 5,000 kits a day, Cape Bio, which was spun out of the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in 2018, could meet approximately a tenth of South Africa's current daily testing rate. We are able to achieve results faster. And Dima also says Cape Bio's test kits produce results quicker than those being imported within two hours compared to four to five hours. He added that Cape Bio, with a team of 11, will supply the kits to the government, but is also seeing demand from other companies globally. One of U.S. President Donald Trump's favorite anti-coronavirus drugs, hydrochloroquine, is finding some favor again. In spite of findings published two months ago in the Journal of American Medical Association that hydrochloroquine, when used to treat COVID-19, caused cardiac arrhythmias, a major global trial of the drug is about to resume. British regulators have approved the resumption of the so-called COPCOV trial involving 40,000 healthcare and other at-risk workers. The stop-start trial, the biggest and therefore the most important, was halted when inconclusive or red flag results from smaller scale trials left regulators in the UK and the USA nervous. You'll find more about this story on biznews.com. Welcome to Dr. Ron Whelan, who's the Chief Commercial Officer at Discovery Health. Ron, it's uh, quite scary to see the country at number five in the world on the number of daily increases. You did warn us last time we spoke. You said it was the calm before the storm and we're going to be going through pretty choppy waters the next few weeks. Uh, yes, indeed. And yeah, thank you, Alec. The global numbers are staggering. And, yeah, the end doesn't seem in sight anytime soon. As you mentioned, in South Africa, you have some challenges as well. In fact, on a run rate basis, we're up to 5,000 infections just about every day, 5,000 new infections every day if you do it on a, a seven-day moving average. What's really, I think, what's scary about that is that as of this week, Gauteng has now overtaken the Western Cape. So Gauteng is now recording roughly 1,600 infections every new infections every day. The Western Cape is recording 1,200 new infections every day. So if you add those two numbers up, you get to just sort of 3,000 of the 5,000 infections across two of our big provinces. And that's probably understandable in that these are densely populated provinces and where infection is known to spread across your more densely populated areas. But it is concerning to watch the trends in South Africa and particularly the trends in Gauteng. And I think illustrates for us that we need to be vigilant and we need to maintain all of the, the good things we've been doing over the last four months. It certainly seems like there's a little bit of fatigue you know, creeping into the country and we're all a little bit jaded and tired of COVID. We've got to prepare for this marathon, folks. It's uh, yeah, still a few months ahead of us on, on this journey. Ron, I guess the confirmation there is that some people were thinking maybe the Western Cape was going to be like New York in America or northern Italy and the rest of the country wouldn't be affected as badly, that's not the case. No, exactly. I think that's a very appropriate explanation. What we're seeing, by the way, in America is that it started in New York, but it has spread now across America, and in particularly down south. But you see Texas in particular is here, seeing some very big numbers recently. And what's interesting is if you look at Europe, there are resurgences in Europe. Yes, uh, earlier on this week, 
a meatpacking plant in Germany needed to be closed because 1,500 people got infected with COVID. 1,500 people in a meatpacking plant in Europe, in Germany. Similarly, in Israel, the Israelis are moving into another phase of their lockdown. They've had to shut over 100 schools in Israel as a result of resurging infections. And we're seeing these pockets happen globally. In China, we've seen some pockets. Just to illustrate, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We've got to learn to live with all of the preventive elements we've put in place here, face masks, hand sanitization, social distancing, all of the stuff we've been talking about over the last uh, few months or so. We now are ticking up towards 700 new infections daily within the Discovery Health ecosystem. That's a big number, and we've been watching these numbers closely over the last uh, two months or so. And scary to a month or so ago, we were at 30 new infections daily, but now it's 700 new infections daily. And that's obviously very scary for us. That's very scary for, for our members. It means that more people are seeing doctors. It means more people are in hospital. We know what we have to do. And when we stray, there's the consequences. And I guess as society uh, at large, people working at home also need to be taking certain precautions. That's exactly, exactly right, Alec. It's all about little spit droplets, little saliva droplets. It's all about coughing, sneezing, and singing. If you take anything out of this message today, coughing, sneezing, and singing should be out of bounds. Now, the good thing about coughing, sneezing, and singing is if you put a mask on, well, then go bananas, cough, cough, sneeze, and sing. Masks are amazing protective devices, both for yourself as well as for anyone you're in close contact with. So just to reiterate that message, 50% of the infections at home, be careful at home, 50% of infections in the office, the office-based infections are all around clusters, coughing, sneezing, singing. There is a big caveat I'd like to put over the top of all of the stuff, and it alludes to your earlier point, Alec. The good news in South Africa, and there definitely is good news here, is that the mortality rates are very low in South Africa. Two percent in South Africa, and in fact, in Gauteng, 0.6 percent, which means that if you get COVID in South Africa, you've got a very good chance of both surviving and having a, a good outcome. We're seeing this across our Discovery members, we're seeing this across the population, and we're certainly seeing this in our Discovery employees. In fact, we've only had two employees who, as a precaution, were admitted to hospital. They made their full recovery, so the vast majority of people are asymptomatic. So very low mortality rates is the one piece of good news. The second piece of good news globally, and a new study that was just released this week, is that 64% of people, 64%, so 6 out of 10, are asymptomatic have no symptoms whatsoever. There's a good chance that you may have had COVID already and have had no symptoms at a full recovery. So that's really an interesting report that came out of Italy this week. So firstly, mortality is low, outcomes are good in South Africa. Secondly, lots of asymptomatic infections, which means this is a general flu-like illness. But then I think most importantly is we're into the middle of this pandemic, folks, it's more important than ever to take all of the precautions possible, most notably close contact, mask wearing, and remember the message around coughing, sneezing, and singing.
Derek Krauss is, well, currently in the UK, but a very South African pedigree, Perisys. And before that, University of KZN. I see we've got something in common, at least, if not your, <laughs> your insights in, into the whole technology field. Um, at the moment, you're working uh, with a company called Global ABM. What exactly does it do? Global ABM is, we focus on a, on a sort of small subset of artificial intelligence called agent-based modeling, or ABM for short, which is where the name comes from. I won't get too techy on it, but it's a, a micro-simulation sort of style of programming where we try and simulate real world events or entities by programming the minutiae and then spawning millions of simulations of this to try and see emergent behavior and see what patterns come out of it. It's been used a lot in the past with things like traffic simulators and all sorts of stuff, but it's got applicability in a whole host of fields. Our initial focus was on oil tanker shipping. We took a bit of a a stab at the at the COVID space as well and subsequently. Well, it's a fascinating stab, as you put it, uh, knowing, knowing your background and how incredibly ahead of its time Perisys was in the work that you did there, which was finally sold out to the Australians, to Iris. I wouldn't expect anything less from you, though. But just before we unpack what the simulation shows us in very basic layman's terms, how many data points do you have or how many players do you have in the simulation? We sort of set our sights on the UK just because it was the back door. And it really started with the process of trying to get a one-to-one simulation because that's when ABM works its best. So the target was for England alone was around 56 million people. And so we've got 56 million little independent agents which go through the process. And we run the models for a year at a time. So I must kind of qualify. We are not epidemiologists or virologists, but obviously with the rest of the world caught up in this credible circumstances that, that the world is facing and thought, well, we know we have to do everything we can to try and throw our hat in the ring and help out and set about trying to build this tool. So it starts with really understanding a, a country's, they call it contact matrices, which is really just broken down by age group, what ages are likely to be in contact with how many people from other age groups. And then from that, we build representations of the network. So all 56 and a half million Agents in our simulation, which represent one per person in England, gets plugged in and it gets given four sort of networks, a a school network, a home network, a social network, and then a a sort of a transfer, transport. We call it other, just a general network. And then over time, we step through what happens to each of these against a sort of a, a matrix of probabilities to try and sort of see what the spread of the virus would look like at an individual level. So, Derek, what important messages can we draw from this very detailed simulation that you've done? Alec, I think the one thing that we've realized sort of going through this process as laymen is that it is so nuanced and there's so many variables at play here that it's sort of macro statistics, if you want to call it that, and making decisions based on macro statistics is is probably fraught with danger because We've seen differences between different age groups and different regions and how the virus moves between those sort of regions. So I think that would be the one thing. And the second point I'd like to make is, is that I think where as a world, we were probably not as prepared as we could have been. No one knew this was coming, but is, is that the ability to collect information about the, the spread, the infection, et cetera, in an era that's so super connected and everybody's on some form of digital platform, it, it's still been surprisingly difficult. You know, we spend hours sanitizing data off 
various sources and there's just kind of no real one point to go to. And I think that's something that might come out of this as a positive in the way health organizations share data and collect data. Um, Where did you collect yours from? Johns Hopkins University or some of the other sources? To be honest, my partner ran and I ran with that extensively. He spent hours, days, weeks and weekends running with it, but really a host of sources. We have got a white paper, well, it's not a white paper, a technical paper on the thing and a bit of a breakdown of the process we've gone through and, you know, where we feel that we could have done a lot more. And in that list is a list of all the data sources that he used to, to help us build the picture of what we think has been happening in the UK up until this point in time. You said that you'd now want experts to mm. pick up with this model and use it. Who, what are experts in this? How would you describe the experts? I mean, an expert for me is somebody who is close to understanding the disease and the nuances of the spread of the disease that has questions they want answered. They want to be able to ask what if questions so that they can start to form policy around what it is they need to do to, to react to this. And that would be somebody we would love to engage with, somebody that says, okay, guys, I don't necessarily want to be involved in the nitty-gritty. I want to understand clearly what the workings of the model are doing so that there's no super magic black box area. It's an open and transparent approach, but I need you to run me a scenario that says, what if I dropped how many people between 50 and 70 are in communication with each other? And what if we did this by age? What if we did this by region? What if, what if, what if? And to be able to answer those questions, that would be somebody we would look to do. We've taken information from the public domain and tried to build something that answers the questions as we see it from the outside and as a normal people in the street. But to have somebody who's really in the heart of it asking the right questions would be fantastically valuable to us. And from your old homeland here in South Africa, is there any application that could be used? Here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's actually quite ironic that the size we were running was about 56 million, I think, is not too far off the South African population. What uh, would be very interesting to do is, if I could just spend a minute on the process, is, is that uh, we start with these contact matrices of how many people from different age groups we see, and then we build these networks, as I discussed earlier. Obviously, that would look slightly different in South Africa than it would in the UK. Yes, we've got the sort of centers and the concentrated areas and the touch points in that would be very much more, we'd give a different shape, but that's where we start. We build those networks up front and then we apply it to the model. And thereafter, it's a situation of sort of saying, okay, what are the South African nuances to this in terms of infection rates? You know, is there another network? You know, let's take into public transport works a little bit differently in South Africa. You know, you've got these massive influxes in the mornings, I suppose, but not necessarily all using trains. You know, they're using there's taxis involved. There's a lot of uh, carpooling involved, all that kind of good thing. So it would be to tweak those networks to sort of see if we could get the picture to match the, the South African story at the moment. Yeah, but it can be applicable here. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we you know we'd like to think that uh, with some time invested in building the correct networks and, and layouts, we could have a got sort of any group of people or country with the model. Yeah. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In yesterday's episode, we looked at how poor management of the pandemic caused thousands of unnecessary deaths in the U.S.'s epicenter of New York. This report from our partners at Bloomberg suggests the mortality rates in just reopened restaurants will be even more extreme. The PNL podcast Paul Sweeney and Vonnie Quinn got the lowdown from food editor Kate Crader. 
Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of how you think the reopening of the restaurant business in New York City is going to go. We're all going to be sitting on sidewalks and in the middle of the street, I guess. But what did you <laughs> what did you see yesterday, and what are some of the restaurant tours thinking as as uh, they reopen? Um, that's a really good question, um, and I think um, I think how it went and how it's going to go depends on who you ask, because for some people, for restaurateurs. I think a lot of them are just delighted that they get to be back in business and serving people. And, you know, they've been setting up tables six feet apart and, you know, all of a sudden, like, activating their parking lots and turning them into dining rooms. Um, but for then, for some other people, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. And so for some people, they realize that selling a $10 um, bowl of soup is not financially viable when you can only do 50% capacity and have people six feet apart. So it's different. It's different throughout. But I think there's a cost of optimism. That's what I would say overall. Yeah, Kate, there are 27,000 restaurants in New York City. Surely all of them wow. don't have outside room, do they? No, they sure, they sure don't. <laughs> Not New York City. I mean, the mayor has closed, I think, like 43 miles of streets, and that some of that can alleviate a lot of restaurants were able to apply for outdoor seating permits in a place like Peter Luger in Brooklyn that has never ever served steak outside their doors um, <laughs> got the permit got the permit and as of Thursday is going to have tables outside their restaurant and is turning their parking lot into a sort of picnic area so um, so a lot of restaurants can take advantage of it. But certainly, you're right, not all of them can, and not all of them want to. Just to follow there, I wasn't sure if you needed a permit. How does the permitting system work, and how much does it cost? Um, that's a good question that I haven't applied to a permit, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I know that I know that the permitting um, went live on, I think it was, it was either Thursday or Friday, so just like four or five days ago to have a permit for Monday. So there's been a lot of, there hasn't always been great messaging from the government. You know, I think that a lot of restaurants and restaurateurs continue to have a lot of questions about what to do. For instance, you're eating outdoors, but what happens if you have to go to the bathroom because there's all these rules about distance and how many people can use the bathroom and all of it. So there's still a ton of questions. Um, but the permitting process, I think it went really quickly once people could apply, but the applications went up very late, as I understand it. So, Kate, I know uh, Leslie Patton and you wrote a story for today on the Bloomberg, and the, the headline really grabbed me. 2.2 million restaurants worldwide teeter on the brink of collapse. Can this restaurant industry, is this going to be permanently scarred here? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And we're never going to, you know, if you think we're going to go back to what it was like in February 2020, we're not. You know, I think um, there's there's no way there's no there's no going back. Everybody has to move forward. And the most successful people, the most successful restaurateurs are going to be the ones who realize that and figure out, see new new ways, new way forward and opportunity but um, there was a report from the National Restaurant Association that the industry has already lost $120 billion, and they don't think they can be profitable for at least six months. And I think six months is optimistic, actually. Yeah, and I mean, for restaurants, you have to be profitable on a weekly basis in order to keep them running, Kate. How will the restaurants that have low occupancy to begin with, I, I mean, I'm, several on my street alone can only fit uh -huh. a certain amount of people, how do they manage week to week if they just don't get those extra 10 customers that they need to make that profit margin? 
Yeah, Vani, that's such a good question, and I think especially right now in phase two where it's all outdoor seating, um, this um, chef, Mike Price, at the Clam in New York was saying, usually you could have a slow Monday or Tuesday, but your Saturday, your Saturday would cover your cost. Mm. And now there's so many variables, and also outdoor seating is dependent on weather. So if you have a rainy Saturday and you thought you mm. had sold, you know, sort of sold out, and then you can't fit everybody in. That's a disaster. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of restaurants have been enterprising and turned themselves into like grocery stores and selling cocktails. And that's done a surprisingly good job of helping um, helping create income. But I think exactly as you said, it's still like the margins are so slim anyway. So um, it's a real, uh, it's it's a very challenging future. So just real quick, um, in New York City, how many restaurants are expected to, boy, just go out of business, I guess? Um, that's, a, that's a good and scary question. Um, Open Table did a survey, and they um, thought nationally 25% of restaurants wouldn't make mm-hmm. it. I think in New York that number might be higher. I'm sure, I mean, I think that's a conservative estimate anyway. But in New York, as you guys were saying, space is much tighter, so 50% occupancy is is a big difference, like 10 people, like Bonnie said. So I think that number is going to be higher. I would not be surprised if it's like at least 40%. It's a very scary number. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In our feature story of the day, our partners at the Wall Street Journal take a closer look at the second wave of COVID-19 that has hit the United States, now reporting record new daily infections. It all holds important lessons for South Africa, including how young people are now starting to get seriously ill with the virus. Here's the host of the journal, Kate Limbaugh. Cases of coronavirus in the U.S. are surging again. The virus is on the rise in about two-thirds of the country. It's especially surging in the South and the West. Florida reporting nearly 9,000 new cases, its highest single day to date. Texas have seen more than 5,000 new cases each day. In Arizona, 85% of ICU beds are full. Mississippi reporting limited to no ICU capacity. The number of COVID-19 infections has climbed to nearly 2.5 million cases in the U.S. The U.S. Health Secretary warns time is running out to bring the virus under control. On Friday, the country reported its highest ever one-day total of new cases. But this spike is different from the one that New York went through in March and April, both in who's getting sick and how healthcare systems are responding. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Monday, June 29th. Coming up on the show, the latest COVID outbreaks in the U.S. and the new approaches hospitals are taking. Arizona is one of the states where the cases are climbing the fastest. And medical workers around the state are trying to get ready for the influx of patients. Like Dr. Michael White, the chief medical officer of a Phoenix healthcare system called Valleywise Health. My job is to plan and my job is to worry. 
And worrying to me right now is the increasing positive cases that we're seeing in there and those that potentially may need hospitalization that are going to overwhelm our resources. That is the one worry I have, that we will fill ourselves to capacity and then beyond our capacity as we go forward. Michael's been worrying about his hospital system being overwhelmed since March, when that kind of system overload happened in states like New York and New Jersey. Arizona did have a number of coronavirus cases early on, and Michael was preparing for a surge. But that surge didn't come, which seemed to him like a good sign. I was hopeful when we didn't see that big spike in those March times that hopefully we were going to be able to as I like to say around here, keep it at a slow, moderate burn where we would see patients, but we would be able to successfully transition them, you know, through their acute phase and into a more convalescent phase of their care without suddenly overwhelming the resources of the delivery systems. And what was the moment when you realized that that slow, moderate burn was starting to change? Here within our health system, we've noticed a small rise in the number of cases within the last two weeks. So we knew once we started to see an increased number of patients that were testing positive for the novel coronavirus within Phoenix, that we were going to start to see more and more positive cases, knowing the exponential spread that we see with the novel coronavirus. Arizona is seeing exponential spread right now. And so are other states around the country, places like Texas and Florida. We're seeing both a geographic shift and a shift in actually who is getting infected. Our colleague Brianna Abbott has been reporting on the latest spikes of coronavirus. So early on, the hotspot outbreaks were New York, New Jersey, Illinois. And now those places have done a really good job of slowing down their spread. Cases, hospitalizations and deaths are on the decline. But now we're starting to see the virus sort of surge in states in the south and in the west. What are some of the reasons that cases are rising in those places? One of the major reasons is a lot of the southern states sort of opened a bit earlier, early in May, compared to a lot of the places that were really hard hit. Some of them didn't necessarily hit all of the criteria that was set out by the public health officials in the White House that you needed to meet, like declining cases. And so a lot of these states opened early May, and then you see things open And people don't necessarily start gathering in large groups right away. You know, it's not like the first date was opened. Everybody sort of crowded bars and restaurants. It's been sort of phased. And so a lot of these cases now, public health experts say that they probably really kicked off around Memorial Day, which is when after a few states that had been reopened for a bit, a lot of them really let down their guard and people started congregating more often. And it's just been sort of going on ever since. What are states in the South uniquely struggling with that states in the earlier outbreak didn't struggle with? I would say compliance. Early in the days, you really saw in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, everything sort of shut down while cases were going up and you saw everybody adapt and sort of internalize those behaviors. But the issue is, in some of these southern states, everything shut down before cases started spiking. And the public health recommendations don't seem like they're sticking as much. You're seeing people not wearing masks, not socially distancing. The people who tend to be flouting these public health recommendations the most are young people. A lot of it that we're seeing is, frankly, just clusters of 
younger people resuming business as usual and sort of congregating in beaches and closely packed bars. The Louisiana Department of Health last week linked more than 100 cases to a cluster of bars in an area near Louisiana State University called Tigerland. You can just sort of see the cases coming when you see everybody packed in there and not taking the precautions. Young people, which states are generally defining as those in their 20s, 30s and up to mid 40s, have been getting infected at higher rates than in the earlier outbreaks. This is partially because of their behavior, going back to work or going to crowded spaces like bars and restaurants. But Brianna says there's also another reason that the data show more infections. Testing. We do have a better testing capacity than we did in March and April. So back in the early days of the pandemic, when we were struggling to even have capacity within a state to get tested, only the most severely ill that were showing up in hospitals could actually get a test. So we likely missed a lot of mild or moderate cases, which happened to skew younger. So now that we're testing more, you're going to see that shift a little bit. While there is more testing... Has the rate of positive tests changed? Yes. So for the rate of positive tests, that's something that public health officials use to sort of track disease spread while taking testing into account. And so earlier on, when we basically weren't testing anybody, the percentage of tests that were coming back positive were really high. It was like 40%. And so that was a sign that we weren't testing enough. But now that the testing is more widespread, if the percentage of positive tests are going up, that means that the disease is spreading. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of these states. So even though we're testing more, the disease is also spreading more. So you spoke with some younger people who became seriously ill with the virus. What were their stories? Yeah, so one of the people that we spoke to was Jimmy Flores, who's 30 and he lives in Phoenix. And he, on the night of June 6th, went to a nightclub with his friends, shared drinks, you know, didn't wear a mask, wasn't socially distancing. He says that he thought he was invincible. And two days later, he felt sick. The next week, he was in the hospital breathing from an oxygen tube after testing positive for COVID-19. And before this, he didn't know anyone with COVID, and now he knows 15 people who have tested positive. And there have been similar stories from parties in Florida with just people going out, and then all of a sudden, their entire group just gets struck down. What did doctors and public health officials who you spoke with say about the current outbreak? They said that they were sort of alarmed by what they were seeing because now all of a sudden the average age of someone testing positive for COVID-19 has dropped. And they're seeing younger people in their 20s and 30s gasping for breath because they have been hospitalized with this disease after not necessarily thinking that it was a big deal. Granted, younger people do on average have better outcomes than older people. But younger people also have underlying health conditions. There's also a risk. There's no guarantee that you are protected just because you're young and you're fit and you're healthy, like you're still sort of seeing bad consequences. And so they're really concerned about it, not only just for younger people, but how it's spreading in those communities, because not only are young people getting really sick, but they can also 
pass it on to others who are going to have worse consequences than them. Once it starts spreading, it just gets harder to stop. In states like Florida, Texas, and Arizona, ICUs are now running out of beds, and doctors are starting to sound the alarm. In Dr. Michael White's hospital system in Arizona, they're reaching capacity. Some staff members are having to work new shifts or jobs just to make sure patients are cared for. And Michael says he watched the struggles of New York hospitals earlier this year when they had little experience managing the disease, a limited supply of protective gear, and minimal testing. They learned a lot on the fly. Those of us that are a little later here are really going to be able to take some of those lessons to heart and hopefully learn from their experience. Those lessons from early hit states have helped Michael's hospital system figure out how to best treat COVID patients. We've seen the things that they did early on within the pandemic around the use of ventilators. We understand the early use of ventilators may be detrimental to patients. You know, we're learning more about how we can manage folks with oxygen therapy, some of the team-based approaches around how patients are positioned in a prone position, laying on their stomach, creating the teams that are just dedicated on helping turn patients, the proning teams. The hospital also had more time to build special treatment areas for COVID patients so that there's a lower risk of the virus being spread around the hospital. We created an additional 25 areas that can do negative pressure within our hospital that didn't exist you know, before March. You know, so we've had the luxury of time to be able to do that. What is the benefit of negative pressure rooms? It really helps us make certain that in any of the aerosolizing procedures, so anything that could potentially put droplets in the air, those get immediately sucked out of the room and out into filters and then filter to the outside. To reduce the spread of infectious particles. Correct. It decreases the chance that you could, you know, have it spread within the facilities or, you know, having it spread directly to actually one of the healthcare workers that can then, can then carry it out somewhere else. And hospitals across Arizona have also had more time to develop systems to transfer patients so that one hospital doesn't get overloaded. This was something that New York City hospitals struggled with when cases peaked there. We saw it very early on in Arizona because of our proximity to the Navajo Nation and the northern part of Arizona, where their capacity in northern Arizona was quickly overwhelmed and how we got patients from northern Arizona down into the valley here within Phoenix and how those patients then could be distributed amongst the health systems here. So not one health system was being overwhelmed all at once. So that's hospitals working together to manage patient transfers, so not one hospital or hospital system is overburdened. Correct. And it's become a larger and larger group as this pandemic has progressed. Arizona is already seeing a lower mortality rate than states with earlier outbreaks, in part because of better treatment and preparedness that came with a more generous timeline. That could still change since some public health experts say a rise in deaths could still be coming. As a healthcare executive and a healthcare leader, it's certainly stressful to make sure that we are able to have the resources available. We want to make sure we have everything in place to be able to care for whoever walks in the door and be ready for that. Again, we just don't want to be overwhelmed all at once. When that happened here in New York and the hospitals got taxed, there was one tool that we had because there's no vaccine was. Right shut it down, social distancing. Now that cases are climbing in Arizona again, do you think the state should consider shutting down again? 
I think we need to do our best to understand, you know, the best way to handle this is what we did in, in March is we did stay at home for a while and we saw the cases go down. I recognize that everybody is maybe a little taxed and a little tired from having to do this early on, but we know that that works around that. Unfortunately, you're right, we don't have a lot of other strategies without vaccination or other known therapies to really cure the virus to do that. Some of the states experiencing spikes are taking steps to shut back down. Florida ordered its bars, which had reopened, to close again. In South Florida, counties are closing beaches for the July 4th weekend. Texas also ordered its bars to close. And Governor Greg Abbott said Sunday the virus has taken, quote, a very swift and very dangerous turn. This has been episode 54 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or the biznews.com app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.